Hello, everyone. Welcome to IT Tech Talk. I'm your host, Joel Ward. And with me today is returning guest, Dr. Eric Cole. He is the founder and CEO of Secure Anchor Consulting. He is also a cybersecurity James Bond, according to Fox News, who started off his career as a professional hacker trained by the CIA. Uh, Eric, how are you doing today? I am doing great, my friend. It's such a pleasure to be back on your show. It, you know, the honor is mine. Uh, when you went on my show the first time, and I, I'm embarrassed because my show was just starting out. And I didn't have professional equipment. As you can see, I got a new mic. I've got new equipment here. I've got like a tablet. I've got all new setup, new office. Uh, so it's all new professional setup. So I, I'm really excited to have you back on the show on the Redefined 2.0 show. Uh, Eric, you know, we we talked a lot about cybersecurity. We talked about your book. Um, as a cybersecurity expert, you know, I want to dive into one question that I, a lot of my listeners who talk, when I talk to cybersecurity analysts, wish I would have asked, AWS, is it secure? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and what I mean by that is uh, I, I sort of like working out and exercising and being healthy. And somebody once asked me going, so can you eat healthy at the Cheesecake Factory? And I'm like, well, it depends on what you order, right? There's some healthy options and mm-hmm. there's not some healthy options. So it really depends on what you decide to eat at the restaurant on whether it's a healthy meal. And the reason I start with that is that's AWS. AWS has really turned in to a menu of security options that you can choose from. Yeah. So if you decide to go in and utilize the security that AWS provides to you, it is a very secure environment. In in full disclosure, that's what I use for my company and what I recommend to my clients. But I just always emphasize that you have to take the initiative Mm-hmm. to turn on the security. We're in an interesting point where vendors like AWS, and I would definitely say hats off to Amazon. Yeah. They are really one of the leaders in making sure security is fully integrated into their suite. But they're in an interesting point where they feel like that having security mm-hmm. is a differentiator, but they don't feel that their customers want it enough that they force it on them, which it means it's there, but it's turned off. So the big lesson in AWS, and this is true with online banking and e-commerce, is in most of those cases, the security is there, but you need to turn it on. So if you're using ADS, you want to turn on the detection. You want to turn on the behavioral analytics. You want to turn on the account notifications. Essentially, you really can't go wrong with select all, right, when it comes to the security. (laughs) Now, some of it is a little more intensive in terms of the amount of work and energy. So you do want to understand a little bit. But the point is, if you turn on and engage with AWS, it is a very, very secure environment, but it requires you to take action. So, and, and, and I've actually found out, which I didn't know, a lot of companies like Uber, Netflix, and, and many other companies have moved to the AWS system. So, Thinking of that as as we've seen so many different cybersecurity leaks and 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 threats across the country uh, with like password hacks and stuff, are these because people aren't turning on their select all, <laughs> or is it because they're just selecting only a few security things? So so it's a little bit of both. A lot of the hacks 
that you're really seeing, I would put more under the category of stupid human tricks, which is humans are very clever at being creative and also bypassing security. So a lot of the hacks you actually see, they don't really come out and say this because they would be embarrassed, but are really people at the company setting up privileged administrative accounts with weak passwords. So a lot of it is really not maintaining the accounts, not turning on the features, but let's back up and look at one of the recommended settings in AWS is two-factor authentication with out-of-band verification. So if you turn that on, then the silly mistakes of humans of having weak passwords is basically bypassed or negated because you're not doing it anymore. So I would say absolutely, if you turn on those features, they would either negate, remove, or minimize the damage of the attacks that we've seen. And you also bring up an interesting point that I get a lot, which is, Eric, as more and more companies move to AWS, yeah, does this paint a bigger target? Right, because now if you're an attacker, right, if you target, break in or go after AWS, you're going to get a lot more information and data. But yes. two ways to answer that: one is, I actually look at it as a positive, not a negative, and here's why: as more and more companies move to AWS, okay, and it becomes a bigger target, AWS is incentivized to crank up their security. They yes. know. <laughs> And and I talked to the folks there. They know that the difference between success and failure of their entire AWS business is a breach. Yes. If there's a major breach of a client on AWS, just like we see people mass migrating, you will see people exiting very, <laughs> very quickly. They are fully aware of it. So to me, it's actually sort of a net positive. And the second thing to remember is AWS, the way they set it up, Mm-hmm. It's fully segmented. So it's really a highly segmented data center that they're actually isolating the system. So if one system gets compromised, it might be able to impact a few others, but it's not going to be something where they could then do a mass attack and break okay. into every single client. So so they can't just hack one server and then they could probably get three more, but after that, it closes off the system, correct? Exactly. I don't know if you've heard the term zero trust, which is... Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's the big buzzword. And essentially the idea is you do fully isolated systems. So if somebody breaks into one, they can't cause damage to others. And I would say while AWS is very careful in their marketing and advertising, they are probably one of the vendors that I've seen that are the closest Mm-hmm. zero trust than most because they are fully aware that a mistake with one client can absolutely not impact other clients. And they basically have created an environment to minimize that from happening. So if Netflix is, let's, let's, for example, use Netflix as an example. If Netflix's servers get compromised, it'll only compromise Netflix servers, correct? That, that is correct. Now, if it turns out it's a fundamental vulnerability mm-hmm. in how AWS set up their servers, then they would get into Netflix and then they could use the same vulnerability to get into everyone else. But the probability of that ever happening is pretty close to nil. And because of the monitoring, if it did happen, 
AWS would detect it and then close out the vulnerability very quickly in other systems. So they're doing a lot of backend monitoring in addition mm-hmm. to any security that companies might add on. So one of the questions I have here, uh, it, it's uh, as I see a lot of companies moving away from their own servers. Uh, you know, they have ser- they had servers locally and now they're moving to the cloud. You know, is it is it a very viable objective to move away from your own systems is it is it a smart decision to move to a to a system protected by a big conglomerate or is it smart to also have on-site servers what what's your opinion on that is is it better to have on-site stuff and have your stuff on hand to watch it yourself or is it better having a whole team of aws support monitoring it so as you move from small to medium to large Mm -hmm. The, the question gets a little different, but let, let's start. When you're talking small, medium-sized companies, you absolutely should not be running your own servers. You should okay. absolutely not be running your own systems. And the reason is simple. Security and IT are an overhead. Yeah. And if you're running it internal, it is an overhead that's based on how well the company's doing. So if the company has a good year, IT gets more money. If it has a bad year, IT gets less money. And the problem with that is the IT security needs don't vary based on the business. So you create this exposure point. If you outsource it, you now get consistent service. You know it's an expense that doesn't change based on overhead. And you're getting world-class access to top-tier people because now at Amazon, you're getting one of the top security people. Yeah. A tenth of their time, which is not somebody you could ever hire. So you're getting a higher caliber because you're only fractionally using their services. Okay. Now, when you get into larger companies, you Such have to is, be a like, little more careful. Like, what about like banks? Like that is banks. Like for banks, for example, would they should they keep their stuff locally in in a in a facility of their own? Right. Yeah. Yes. So b- banks is where it gets interesting because they have a lot more sensitive. Data. So their argument is we want to keep that information controlled and protected. Yeah. We don't necessarily want that directly accessible from the internet, but that's where we get into the discussion of public private cloud. Yeah. Which with Amazon, a public cloud is where you're getting servers from them that are directly accessible from the internet. So you set up websites, you set up authentication, but anybody can see that. So that's really appropriate or the front end of a bank. So yeah. like when you go to your bank and you type in www.whateverbankyouwant.com and it shows up, that yeah. has to be on a public cloud because the website's there. However, when you start typing in your account information <laughs> and it starts pulling up your data, you want to have that on a private cloud's uh, component. So that's where I even think banks and large companies are now giving in where in the past they said, we must run our own servers. And they're realizing, no, no, it's better to let it be at Amazon, but it's a hybrid public-private solution where you're paying a little more because mm. you're getting your own cluster or what they call cage, but it's private, it's isolated, and no one has access to it. So the cloud or AWS is still appropriate for larger companies with sensitive data. It just requires a lot more architectural design than just going in and buying an online account with AWS. 
you know, uh, I, I, I'm always following your, um, your LinkedIn and you're always talking about CTO and, and CISO support, you know, stuff like that. Can you explain to my listeners what you mean by CTO and, 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 and CISO support? Uh, sure. So, uh, in an organization, you have CEO, which most people know of a chief, uh, executive officer. You have your chief financial officer. Uh, you often, most companies today have a CIO, a chief information yeah. officer. And then one of the newer roles in companies is what you call a CISO or a chief information security officer. And they're the ones that are responsible for security. The problem you have is because IT matured first, right? Yeah. You need to have IT infrastructure before you secure it. That what a lot of companies did is they took the CISO, the chief information security officer, and they report or buried under the CIO. Now, here's the problem. A CIO, chief information officer, if you're not familiar with them, they're bonused and paid based on uptime availability. Okay. So you might have heard the five nines. Most CIOs have to deliver 99.999% uptime availability. And if they do that, they get bonused. And as we say, champagne flows from the heavens and everything works out perfectly (laughs) for them. But that's their focus. That's their life is uptime availability. Yeah. So if you bury security under it, that creates an inherent conflict of interest. I don't care how moral and ethical you are as a CIO. (laughs) If your focus is uptime availability and security risks that uptime availability, you're not going to do what's needed. So that's where we've seen cases. One of the best examples of that not working is if we go back, I think it's maybe even eight, nine, 10 years ago, I lose track of time, but the target breach. Yeah. If you remember that target breach, what happened there is the security was buried under the CIO. And in October, the end of October, they went to the CIO and said, listen, we have major vulnerabilities on internet-facing systems. These can cause huge breaches and millions of compromised records we need to patch immediately. Yeah. And the CIO said, listen, we have eight weeks left in the year. Our uptime availability numbers are really, really low. And if we patch and something goes down, we're going to miss our numbers and that's going to look bad. I'm not going to get bonus. Let's wait till January and famous last words. What could possibly go wrong in the next eight weeks? And as we know, as that story unfolded, November happened and the attackers broke in, stole uh, hundreds of millions of records. One of the, one of the top probably five or six breaches of all time and caused major, major damage. CIO got fired, CEO got fired. So so it was one of those things where that's an example where the CIO was so focused on uptime availability, they made a bad decision on security and ended in a negative way. If they would have had a more open view and said, hey, let's patch, I don't care about uptime availability, then we would have had a different ending to that story. So, you know, you talk about a good bit of cybersecurity, you know, in, in your lifetime. You've had a, uh, you know, 30 years of experience of doing this basically and, and more, I think, at this point, since I think this is actually out, out of date, uh, 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 from what I have, but you know, you, you talk so much and you have several books out. And one of the ones I just got right before our last interview, you had just published it with Cyber Crisis. And, and you talk about, 
protecting your business from real threats in the virtual world. So I would like to talk about what a real threat in the virtual world looks like today in 2022, bouncing in a few weeks to 2023, what that looks like in the near future. Yeah, so so one of the reasons I wrote that book is because the media, yeah, to me, does a very unfair job of covering cyber. It's not it's not a topic they've launched onto. It's not a topic they love. It's not a topic they want to talk about all the time. I, I jokingly say that I, I wish they would realize cybersecurity is so much cooler. Yeah. Than election fraud or Trump. I mean, it's like right. that, that's all that seems to be all they want to talk about. I'm like, hey, this is better. This is better, but, right. the, but they don't seem to get it. So what happens is. If you're an executive or somebody who's not technical and you watch the news, uh-huh. what you think is that a major attack happens once every six to nine months. It only happens against huge companies yeah. and then it goes away. So essentially, if you could survive and out of the hundreds of thousands of companies out there, you're not that one every six or nine months, you're good. But the reality is attacks are happening every minute of every day. Since we've been on this podcast, Probably at least a dozen companies have been hacked and compromised. It's really happening that quick, and people don't realize it. Now, <clears throat> when my book came out, it's interesting because that's when the rise of ransomware, the book came out about yeah. 18 months ago. So remember, that was Colonial Pipeline hack. And so everyone's visible because a ransomware attack, by nature of holding your data ransom, becomes visible. Yeah. You can't deny when your pipeline is taken down, you can't deny that that you can't say, oh, we did that on purpose, right? Clearly, that's a problem. So ransomware attacks created this visibility around cyber to say, hey, this stuff is real. But then what happened is as we progressed through 2021 into the mid years of sorry, the mid months of 2022, about second quarter, companies started wising up and saying, wait a second. A ransomware attack occurs because we're not backing up our data. So if we back up our data, ransomware goes away, right? Wrong. (laughs) They were fixing the symptom and not the root cause. So companies were saying, we're going to back up our data. So now when somebody holds ransom, then we don't have to pay the ransom. We can recover from backup. But they missed a fundamental point, which is the attackers broke in and took your data. So backing it up just means you can recover. So what do you think happened second, third quarter of 2022? They switched to extortion where they said, great, we broke in and we took your data. We're not going to encrypt it. We're not going to hold it ransom because that's just mean. And we're not mean attackers, right? The reality is because we know you have backups. So here's what we're going to do. If you don't pay us $500,000, we're going to put all your information out on the internet. And we know, and you know, that because this is regulated data, you're going to be fined at least $20 million. So which would you rather, pay us $500K or pay $20 million? It's really your choice. We're, We're trying to be nice good, moral, ethical, evil people here. So we're giving you a choice. So that's what we have right now. 
And that's what we have going into 2023. And that's why it's been so quiet on the news front. Because I actually was just talking, I have a great relationship with Fox and CNN and all, all the major yeah. news channels. And, and they were like, Eric, we'd love to have you back, but there's no stories. And I'm like, yes, there are. <laughs> there's just no visibility piece. And the problem is my word saying, well, I can't tell you the names. I can't tell you this because I'm under NDA, but trust me, it's happening. That's not enough for a news story. So we're in this predicament where companies are paying extortion just this week, uh, four days into this week. I know of seven companies that in total have paid $11 million in ransom. Oh and just so we're put into context, this is a slow week. Yeah. So what we're seeing, and I have a small view of the world, right? So imagine the big, but if I'm seeing with my clients and the people that I talk to, anywhere between 11 to $20 million of total, ran, uh, sorry, extortion payments a week, imagine how bad that problem is in totality, but because nobody wants to say they paid the extortion and nobody wants to say they broke in, yeah. it's becoming the best kept secret in cybersecurity. That's it. You know, it's, it's insane. You know, we, as a society, just kind of go about our daily lives, you know, look at our phones and stuff. And then when something happens to us, we're like, <laughs> oh, no, like I got to protect it. Not knowing that around the world, there's millions of attacks a day, you know, happening in different countries. And, and here in the U.S., like you said, there's tons every day, every hour happening um, while we're having this conversation. One of the things I thought was interesting in the book on page 99, you know, where it talks about mobile weaknesses and, and you were talking about. Um, but the data was compromised, but as always think, what is the critical data? Where is it located and how is it properly protected? Would you like to answer those three questions? Uh, for who? <laughs> for, for anybody. I mean, like what, it, what is critical yeah. data? What is like, is it, is it my bank information? Is it my Netflix password? And where's it located? Like where, I mean, AWS is where Netflix is located, but where's my bank located? Like, that, that's the question I would have. Like, do I need to change my password? And, and is it properly protected? Well, how am I supposed to properly protect it if I don't even own those servers? You see what I'm saying? Yes. So, so, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad you bring it up because that's the big point I emphasize, which is most people want to sit back and in cybersecurity and others play the victim. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, my, my data is, in Netflix, my, my data's at a bank, my data's here, and they got compromised, and it's their fault, and I'm the victim, and I have identity theft, and this is terrible, and poor, blah, 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 blah. But, but I step back, and I look at them saying, okay, let me ask you a question. Why did you give that data to that provider? What, what, why did you give your personal information to them? Yeah. And they're like, well, I thought I had to. And I'm like, do you realize most places that ask for your social security number, it's optional? Yeah. So my, my question now to you is, if you ask yourself that question, what is my critical data as Corporation Eric? And I identify probably my most critical piece of data for identity purposes is my social security number. Mm -hmm. Then I would be super aware of who, where, when I give that to. I would say at least on a monthly basis with either signing up for services, new areas of things like that, somebody yeah. will ask me for my social security number. And because I'm aware of the criticality of it, I say, no. And they're like, but we need it. I'm like, no. Yeah. And they're like, but, but, but Eric, 
we need it. I'm like, okay, then I guess we're not going to do business together. And that's what most people fail to recognize is if you are the one with the money yeah. that you're yeah. giving to somebody else, you have a lot more control. Oh, but Eric, it's this large, big company. They're not going to negotiate with me. Well, if you don't give them your social and other people don't, guess what? They will. Right. And, and I've had a lot of cases where they've come mm-hmm. back and said, okay, we don't need that information. So a lot yeah. of it is being careful of who you give your data to. And another example, you get a random text on your phone. Sorry, you don't believe it's random, but it is that says, hey, I'm from your bank and we're doing end of year closeout and we just need to verify your account. Could you just send me your social so we can verify your account and make sure that there's no fraudulent activity? I get like eight of these texts a day. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, let me ask you a question. If they weren't working and there wasn't some people out there that were applying, you think you'd still get them. So so remember, the fact that you're getting them means other people are falling for it because if nobody fell for it, they would stop doing it. Yeah. So whenever I get those texts, especially six or seven, I'm like, oh, this means it's working. Right? That means there's, <laughs> we have more work to do, Eric. There's more people we have to educate because clearly people are falling for it, but so many people do that. So back to your question, a lot of it is just, Control your data. It's your responsibility. Stop playing the victim and don't give your data out unless it's absolutely needed. And then to your other point is I will not use a service unless they support two-factor authentication. Okay. Passwords are so 1980. Now, if you want to dress up in bell-bottom pants and listen to the Bee Gees, I'm cool with that. I'm not going to judge you. Yeah. But you do not use passwords today. Do not use passwords. If we can get people to just listen to that foundational advice and two-factor, 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 not all, but a large percent of these attacks go away very, very quickly. So off that question or that answer you just gave, what do you think? And I've asked another cybersecurity guy this, and he gave an interesting answer. I want to see your thoughts. What about biometrics and face ID that people use on their phones daily? What is your thoughts on that and how secure is it? So the nice thing about uh, biometrics and and face ID and those things are it's with you all the time. Yeah. So, so you don't, you don't have to like remember, get a pin text to you and retype the pin in and do that stuff. So it definitely has the convenience factor associated with it. But the problem and challenge I have with that is there's an enrollment. So you still have to enroll as Eric. And what people don't realize is somebody can still steal your identity by pretending to be you and enroll their biometrics as you. So we still have to make sure the enrollment is done correctly. Yeah. Right? yeah. If the enrollment is not done in a secure manner, which a lot of companies don't, then biometrics out the door. But, but here's the issue I have with biometrics. If it's stolen or compromised, you can't change it. Yeah. Now let me let me clarify. I don't mean like in that movie. Uh, I, I think it was who was it? Nicholas Cage and John Travolta face off, yeah. where he actually stole the guy. I don't mean stealing your actual face, but think about this: when I do biometrics uh-huh. and I scan in my eye or fingerprint, it's storing a binary representation of my fingerprint. 
It's not actually storing the picture, right? It's a yeah. binary representation. And that's stored in a database. What if I steal that? What if I steal that binary representation? Here's the problem. You can't change your fingerprint. No. So now you're in a situation where somebody stole your biometric data. They can impersonate you. And unfortunately, you can't do anything to really change or modify it. So except when you get into sort of high-end government facilities and things like that, I am not a fan of biometrics from a consumer standpoint because of those reasons. They don't give you a way to change it. If I'm using two-factor authentication and you steal my phone, I change the phone number. Yeah. If if you go in and, and steal my password, I change the password. So to me, that's a more effective mechanism. And because everyone has devices, I'm still in favor of let's stick with two-factor for a little bit. And, and to me, biometrics sounds great and sounds simple, but it has a lot more problems and complexity that most people realize. We're on the last few minutes of our show, and I wanted to real quick touch on two-factor because I actually have been seeing a lot of it pop up in today's society. I just used TurboTax to start filing taxes. When I logged in, it didn't ask for my password. It asked for my it, – it gave me my number. It texted me a code. I entered that code. Then it went to the next screen. It said, "I want send me a code your email. I entered my email. It sent me the code. I entered the code. Boom. I was in. It didn't ask once for a password. So is that two-factor authentication? It's basically two ways of identifying who you are. Yeah, yes, it is. And that, that's what more of them are doing because the problem is a lot of people forget the pin or password. Yeah. Right? So, so like the old method was I enter in an actual password that I remember and then uh, it goes in and texts me one-time number. What more of them are doing now is it'll text you a number uh-huh. and then it will also go in and email you a number. Now, to be honest, I don't like that as much. Yes, it it, it takes the consumer piece out of it. But the problem is, if somebody steals my device, they have everything they need. So I stole, I, I, the clients I consult for, I'm like, no, 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 don't take away the something, you know, still, because even if it's uh, a basic password, if it's still something I have to know, plus something you send me, it, it still adds a level of complexity. But if now you're saying that everything's reliant just on me having a physical device and you steal yeah. this, that, that doesn't work as well for me. So yes, it's okay, but I do not like it as much as the traditional two factor. That's, and that's what I was kind of getting at is um the, what, what you meant by two factor. Did you mean you like the password and the pin? And that's what I was trying going for. So, so yes. as far as is like, you like getting a password in and then they send you a pin to verify. I think that's, that is a smart way of going. Cause if you use two, someone has my email, they still are able to get in. So say I send the verification code, someone's watching my email, boom, they can get into my turbo tax. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, two factor mm-hmm. is too different different methods of authentication. So the methods are something you know, something you have, something you are. Yep. So password, texting a pin, and biometrics are your three main methods. Of course, location, but that's a little different. Yeah. So to me, two-factor are two of those. Doing the same thing is not two-factor. So me no. texting you twice is not two-factor. No. So me texting you and emailing you is not two-factor. So I don't really consider... What you just said they did is a true two-factor. Okay. Well, Eric, 
it has been a pleasure having you on the show. I look forward to uh, to seeing what you're posting in the future and what you're doing and any new books you come out with. Uh, again, for those who are interested, we'll be posting uh, his book on our website as well for you to check out and his links and bio. Um, Eric, it's been a pleasure. Uh, for those, I, I did forget to plug it, um, but uh, for those interested in finding all this information, uh, you can reach it at www.ittechtalkpodcast.com and, and find that information there. Uh, Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on. I, I look forward to to seeing where your company goes. Look forward to seeing you on the on the news again, talking about all these cyber crimes that are happening all across the world and, and, and getting more information out there because I think the more we educate people, the more better off uh, a security a secure and wise uh, nation we will be. Now, I appreciate everything you're doing, Joel, and look forward to talking soon. Thank you so much. 